We seldom realize, for example, that our most private thoughts and emotions are not actually our own. For we think in terms of languages and images which we did not invent, but which were given to us by our society. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Food for Thought. This is your host, as always, Jonathan Coots, and I have an exciting episode for you guys today. I have one that I believe, as always, is very important and very interesting. Today, we are talking about linguistics and how language can affect the way that people think and the way they respond to different ideas and why it is so important to have control over the way that we talk and the way that we can speak and communicate with other individuals. Um, It's a very interesting topic, and uh, before we get into it, though, I'm going to say what I have to say every episode. If you guys have been enjoying what I have been sharing with you guys, the information that I have disseminated out to you through language, might I add, uh, then go ahead and leave ratings and reviews. If you do it for the next week, then you have the opportunity to win a free Food for Thought hat if you tag an Instagram um Jonathan Coots 03 or my Food for Thought 1 account. Um, either one, you can get enrolled to win a free hat or you can send the screenshot of your rating um, to my email, jcoots21 at outlook.com, and I'll put you in a drawing for a free hat. If you guys are interested in that, go ahead and do that. It takes 31 and a half seconds to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Longer if you leave a great, um, great comment in that rating. But anyways, that is your decision. Anyways, let's get into the episode today. So the idea that language can affect the way that people think and perceive has been one that has been debated for many, many years. Um, Different people have had different opinions on that. I read you a quote by Alan Watts, um, whom I've never really heard of before, but I really liked his quote, so I looked into him. He's kind of a crazy dude, honestly. Uh, He was a Taoist and popularized a lot of Middle Eastern religious ideals in the West, but one thing that he definitely got right is that quote, and so I'll read it again. We seldom realize, for example, that our most private thoughts and emotions are not actually our own, for we think in terms of languages and images which we did not invent, but which were given to us by our society. And so it's no surprise that our society and the culture that we have, um, that we live in, very much shapes our language. But a question comes whether or not that is the correct order. Does language shape culture or does culture shape language? But regardless, the effect is the same. And we can look to the great George Orwell to give us another quote on that. But if thought corrupts language... Language can also corrupt thought, and that comes from, of course, uh, 1984. And that's a very, very important idea, uh, that language is 
related to the way that we think, but we have to think in terms of how we can communicate. If you've ever spoken to someone whose English is not their first language, then you understand that idea. There's some concepts that we have in the Western Hemisphere of the world that people just cannot comprehend who don't speak English. And because they have no way to articulate that, then their minds don't often get wrapped around those kind of ideas. But one might ask, maybe that is just pure speculation. Um, is there any real way to empirically or scientifically prove um, this concept that maybe language is wrapped up with the way that people think? So, to answer that, yours truly has been looking the last couple of days on research articles and ideas that can actually prove whether or not language and cognition are related. And it turns out, it very, very much is. Not in astronomical capacities, but there's simple things that we just don't even think about that um, our language actually impedes us from considering certain things in certain ways. Um, and the repercussions from that are limitless because we don't know the minutiae of details of everyday life that our language prevents us from even thinking of because we have no way to articulate it. Back to that George Orwell quote, if our thinking can impact our language, then our language can impact our thinking. If we can't th talk about something, can we think about it? If there's no way for us to actually articulate it, because you have to go back to what language is. Language is a series of sounds and noises that our throats make through breathing through our different aspects of our mouth and our tongue and even parts of the esophagus. Um that actually produce these array of sounds that our minds think about. So we have to be able to actually assign a meaning to these words that actually represent something that we're thinking about. But if we have no way to represent that, then can we actually think about it? It's kind of a chicken or the egg kind of dilemma there, because some can argue, well, yeah, like Shakespeare said, um, a rose is still a rose no matter what you call it, its sweetness remains in, in uh Romeo and Juliet, does it really matter if you can, if it's called something, can you think about it? But then other people would say, well, no, if uh, thought can corrupt language, then language can also corrupt thought. Um, and the context that it's used in 1984 is, of course, in this totalitarian regime, um, when they control your language. Um, compelled speech is not a good thing. I inherently believe that there is some special power in words. Um, that's why I take my name seriously. I've written about that in college essays, actually, why I prefer to be called Jonathan, because of what it represents, because inherently words represent an ideology, a certain meaning and power comes with it. I talked about this before, I believe, but Owen Barfield says that words have a soul. And I think, as a writer, that it, that is an inherently true statement, that the words that you use are extremely important. And uh, Joseph Conrad, uh, who's a famous author from the 1800s, um, he says this, My task which I am trying to achieve is by the power of the written word to make you hear, to make you feel. It is, before all, to make you see. Um, there's also another famous author, Brian Jakes, who's a novelist for a kid's novelist who wrote many of the Redwall, all of the Redwall books. But he says that the goal of the author is to paint a picture with words. 
So throughout history, we've had this belief that words have a meaning. And a lot of authors, um, especially like Brandon Sanderson, who's a famous uh, fantasy writer, and Stephen King, they all say that writing and reading, but most importantly, that medium, words and language, is this way of transmitting thoughts from mind to mind. So it might be a little bit different when you read it than when I read it, but all in all, it is a form of telepathy. So if you can control that, then you can control the way that people think and perceive. If you can control the language and the words that are used, then you can control how people react to them or react to ideas by the way that they write them. Um, if you look at the media, is a very common representation of that. I could scroll through headline and headline and say, oh, well, the way that they're writing this is very dishonest because of the language that they use. It doesn't seem like it's a big deal. And that's the first step, using language and beating around the bush with language around events that transpire. You first control how... You can say things. Well, no, no, no. You can't say stuff like this because that is an act of violence. You can't say it like this. You have to put it in this specific manner. But anyways, before we get much more into that, I want to actually expound upon the idea that this is really actually possible to the fact that language can actually affect the way that you think about things and events. So there is a scientist who did a phenomenal TED Talk that I will, of course, put in the description of this episode. Um, but her name is Lara Boditsky, Boditsky, and she is a professor. And she actually studied for years and still studies, in fact, and is one of the leading scientists in this um, landscape of how does language affect the way that we think? How does it shape the way that we think about things? And she had an extremely interesting uh, study where she did studies with some people from China and then England and then, or English speakers, I should say more broadly, English speakers, Chinese Mandarin speakers, and then um, people from Aboriginal Australia, even Greek, Indonesia, Russia, Chile, all of these different languages that take their roots from different uh, proto-languages from the ancient past. Um, and she studied on how they use words and what their words do and don't say and how what kind of phrases their language actually keep. And so I'm going to do the, the most interesting one in my mind first. The Aboriginal Australians have no words for left or right. So if you were to say my left leg, they wouldn't say it. It would entirely depend on what direction you are facing. So they don't have um, right and left. They have north, south, east, west. So it could be my south-southwest leg, depending on where I'm standing, or my left leg could, or it could be my east-east-north leg, or whatever direction I'm facing, it is that direction. And then if you contrast that with English speakers, or Hebrew speakers, um, Israeli, we have a concept of left to right because of the way that we write. And English, and French, and Spanish, and Latin and Greek all goes left to right on a page. But Hebrew and Arabic speakers go right to left. So then what about these original speakers? And in contrast, or not in contrast, but in tandem with that left to right, the way that we write language, it's also the way that we perceive the passing of time. Most people will say the past 
when you say, well, back then, we gesticulate to the left. If we say in the future, we typically point to the right. But Hebrew people will do the opposite of that. They'll go, the past is to the right, and the future is to the left. But what about these aboriginals that have no concept of left to right? Well, you'd think, uh, maybe they'll just still do it naturally. Uh, they'll go one way or the other. But that's not true. When they're asked to chronologize a series of pictures, like uh, someone's aging, uh, pictures from different years from 30 to 75 or whatever, it doesn't matter, any progression of images that obviously has a flow of time, when they're asked to organize them, once again, it completely varies on where they're positioned. So, Typically, they'll go east to west, but if they're facing north, then it goes left to right. If they're facing south, it goes right to left. If they're facing east, then they actually have the progression going towards them. So time is flowing through them or out of them if they're facing to the west. So it's complete. So the way that they think about time and the way that time travels completely varies on where they are located and how they're positioned in accordance with north, the cardinal directions, north, south, east, west. But if you do that with the Hebrew people, they always order them right to left. That's the way the time passes. If you do it with English speakers, it's right to left. Or, I'm sorry, left to right. Um, so, it so the passing of time is understood differently from aboriginals into Western Hemisphere individuals, people who speak English and people in... Um, South America and East or Far West Europe versus those in the Eurasian continents that have um, the passing of time that way. And then if you contrast that with the, the Mandarin-speaking people, people who speak Chinese, Korean, stuff like that, their passing of time is up or down. So if it was in the past, the word for that is actually down. Or if it's in the future, the word for it is actually up because of the way that they write their words up and down. They don't even go left or right. So it's all extremely interesting. And, the, and that goes to show that the way that you perceive language and the way that your language works can affect the way that you think about such important things as time. But there goes on more than that. Um, it's also extremely important if you have a language that doesn't have numbers. How would you count off? And it's not saying that they can't count, but a lot of those aren't able to because they have no way of even cognizing the idea of counting off numbers. So there's certain languages that don't have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. They don't have those kind of numbers. So the way that they count things is very different than we can. And they wouldn't even be able to actually do basic things like algebra because they have no way of actually reciting or grasping that information because they have no language for it. And I, I brought up this point earlier, but if you have someone who doesn't speak English in a primary thing and you try to explain a very Western culture idea, they have no way to actually understand that. But this can also affect power dynamics because many Western cultures have hierarchies and many Eastern cultures do too. But when you get to cultures like China or uh, Mandarin-speaking nations... Well, they have different words for just um, mother, father, and then grandma and grandfather. I mean, if you think about it in even a Western sense, we normally have two grandmothers. 
So we have grandma and then Mimi or Mama or Mimu or some other term that is either a form of endearment or a lesser term. I never had this. My I didn't I didn't have anything like that. But in a lot of my friends, they have their grandma and then their Mima, and one of them is usually ranked higher than the other, and that is something that comes from our language and language. Other people wouldn't comprehend that. But then you have people like Mandarin, who Mandarin-speaking people, who have very much a hierarchy in the family, but their language goes so much farther than that. There is a different term for first uncle, your second oldest uncle, your third oldest uncle, your youngest uncle. And then each of the uh, according cousins also have their own term. So it's not just my cousin. It's my specifically second oldest cousin. And it's not just my uncle. This is my first uncle, second uncle, third uncle. And that's not actually the words, but that's what they represent. And then you have your grandmother, like on your father's side, that, or actually it would probably be your mother's side, that grandmother is the most important individual of the family. And that is something that 100% comes from their language, and yes, their culture as well, but culture and language are very intertwined. So if your culture changes, then your language also has to change. But what is the conduit that you change a culture? Well, if you ask me, and if you look at some of these research articles, it's the language. The first thing and the easiest thing to do is to shift the language, and that shifts the culture because it's something that disseminates widely. And if you say that is not acceptable to say, especially in a Western culture where so many of our rights are pinnacled on and completely related to and intertwined with free speech, when you begin to say, well, no, you can't say this, then our culture is very much changed. And the way that the culture is disseminated to other people is through language. So that is the medium through which culture is both born, adapted, and transferred is all through language. And so if you can control language, then you can control how the culture comes. And that's why when you look at like the colonization of South America, well, all of the Spaniards insisted that they learn Spanish. And the English people did this too in the North Americas. They... Everything was um, put upon you must learn to speak English. And that is also why um, in the beginning, in the early 1200s, um, in 1100s and the thousands, um, English was seen as a very radical and crazy language that people did not like. Uh, most people spoke Latin and English was banned a lot of times from academic settings and church settings. You had to speak Latin. Um, And then when English spread to the West, that's when a lot of the Western ideals like John Locke came around and all of those people, the radicals, spoke English. And that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to rebel against the old culture of Latin and the things that came with Latin, the papacy and the Catholic Church. And they rebelled when they started the Church of England. And they all spoke English. And then English went to America. And then now there's even different dialects that have very different cultures. The culture of Europe is different than the culture of America. And we speak vastly different dialects. It's still the same language, but it is the controlling of that language that started a whole new culture. Just like when Latin was kind of became a dead language, when English became widely spread in the revolutionary scientific communities, the history of language is very much um, 
related to the history of the actual real Illuminati that existed in the 1600s. Not the crazy conspiracy, but there was an actual group of scientists that called themselves the Illuminati, the Illuminated Ones, and they spread their information through use of English because Latin was um, seen as kind of old standard, and it was very related to the church and Catholicism, and they were rebelling against that. And so they spread their information and their stuff in English. Uh, granted, it was a very old English, very different English than that we have now, but it was still English, and English was seen as a kind of dirty language. But it started a whole new culture that exists up until now. And now we have different people and different agendas trying to control the way that we speak. But anyways, back to the scientific aspects of this, we can see how language is affected, even in when you contrast things like German and French or Spanish or any language that has um, male or female nouns to it or descriptive uses, um, they have male or female versions of things. And so there's actually a very interesting study done on how people describe the same thing and the qualities that they give to it. One of the examples used in the TED Talk was a bridge. In one language, it is seen and described and has um, a feminine word with it. So it is a feminine-gendered word. In another language, it is a masculine-gendered word. And so when people with the who speak the masculine version of it, um, they use things like sturdy, strong, long, big, other things that have masculine connotations to them, durable. But then when you get a culture that has it as a feminine gendered word, they use intricate, beautiful, artistic, um, things that typically have a feminine connotation to those words. And in this research article, they have all sorts of examples like that. They show that when it's an item that has a masculine connotated word with it, when the word is a masculine gendered word, then most of the people of that culture who speak that language will describe it in other masculine connotations and vice versa. When it's a feminine, it is described as beautiful, intricate, um, these feminine associated words, pretty, lovely, stuff like that. And so that goes into things such as a bridge or a table or different such menial things, but they're not actually menial. That's the importance. The way that you articulate something totally changes the way that you think about something because it's how you can express it. If you can't express it, then you can't really think about it because you have no way to actually organize those thoughts because that's what language does. It is an organizational tool for our minds. And if we haven't the means to organize it, then we can't express it and we can't share it. We can't spread these ideas. That is also why the old Catholic Church would not let Bibles be printed. They did not allow other people to read them. And then this actually became especially true um, when English was a very common language then, but the church was still Latin, and all of the Bibles were printed in Latin before the Gutenberg printing press, and so they had a double monopoly on it. They couldn't get Bibles, but they also couldn't read them themselves, because now everybody spoke English, but the church was still run in Latin, um, and the Bibles were still written in Latin, um, 
So they controlled the information, and that is why a lot of people have a problem with the Catholic Church, because the Catholic Church understood how important language was. That's why they tried to ban English outright, and then they tried to keep their people from reading their own Bibles, because they had corrupt means, but that's to be expected from a corrupt institution, from a uh, a human institution, not necessarily a corrupt institution, but human people, human beings, they make mistakes, and they're fallible because we are human. That's what makes us fallible. But regardless, the church understood this idea, which is why they didn't let them read Bibles, because they wanted the political power that came with control over how people got into heaven. Um, honestly, that's what, that's what it is. It's the main finding for it. But the important thing here is that language is an extremely important idea. And it's why the media and other institutions want to control how you speak because we go back to the quote, how you speak is how you think, and how you think controls how you speak. But the conduit for thought and the conduit for culture, which is what they're trying to control, there's of course the phrase, the culture wars, because our culture is very, very important, obviously. It is the standards by which we live life. That is what our culture is. We talked about that in the sociology episode. We talked about norms, and your norms are derived from your culture, and the thing that shapes your culture is your language. Different languages have vastly different cultures. You can go to Guatemala, uh, where I've been, and they speak like five or six different languages in a very small area, and all of them have distinct cultures. Look at English once again. The culture in Australia versus England versus America versus South America, South of the United States versus the North United States, where they have similar dialects but different dialects. Um, all of those cultures are very, very different. And then you look at wider studies. So you look at Australia, England, and Europe, or I'm sorry, Europe and America. And then you look at the Chinese or the Korean, where they have a vastly different language and, not surprisingly, a vastly different culture. Because language shapes culture. The way that you can articulate things is the way that you think about things. Once again, the passing of time. If you think about time from right to left versus left to right, that's not a huge difference. But when you think about things from right to left, these two directions, versus north, south, east, west, and time can flow through you or around you, and it's dependent on the cardinal directions, then you have a very different way of processing how people age. You think about things differently because you think about the flowing of time differently. We talked about Einstein's theories of relativity and how important time is and how I perceive time is extremely important. And then when it, you perceive it in such a radically different way, then your culture is bound to be very differently because you have different connotations that come from time. Or like we talked about whether or not you can count, because you don't have words like one, two, three, four, you have a completely different system for counting. If you have a numbered system at all, some dialects don't even have numbers to be considered. So then how do you do things like algebra? How then do you construct the buildings that we have constructed with modern techniques in algebra? You can't. You can't really have a computer system because you don't have a binary system, which is all numbers. So the way that your language works and the is 
controls the way that you think about things. Back to the bridge or the table. If you think about things in a masculine versus feminine sense, you use these things for different reasons. If you thought a sword was really pretty and feminine, would you use that sword? If you described it as intricate and beautiful, would you think of it as a tool or as a showpiece? Not to be sexist or anything, but I would want a sword that I would use the words to describe it as strong, sturdy, stout. That's something that I would want to take into battle, not something that was pretty or intricate. So I would have a totally different idea of what something is based on whether or not I perceive it as artistic or usable or as a tool. I would have a totally different idea of what that item is to be used for. So if you can control language and if you can control the way that people perceive different things and what people can and can't say, you can control an entire culture and a way that people respond to events or respond to items or pretty much anything. If you can control the words that are used to describe a certain thing, you can control how the culture will respond to it. And if you control the culture, then you can control the norms of that culture and the expected behavior for different people. And that is why language is so important and why there is a battle over being politically correct. There's a battle over language and what you can make me say and what you cannot make me say. It's a whole war that goes back to the desire to control a culture and control a way that people respond to different things and different ideas. So that is all that I had for you guys today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, let me know, leave ratings and reviews, it's very helpful, give me some feedback on stuff, share the show if you thought it was good, if you enjoy what I'm doing, um, it's very helpful in getting other people to hear me and other people to learn about these ideas that I'm bringing forward, you don't have to share it on a social media platform, word of mouth will do just fine, tell a friend to tune in on Saturday mornings, and in the meantime... Go learn something new and go learn something real. And I'll be back next week with some more Food for Thought.